Welcome to the Law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 53 Janice versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. The acronym for that is AFSCME. And in this 2018 case, just from a year ago, the Supreme Court, in a close one, five to four decision, overruled its prior decision from 1977. And that case was called Abood versus the Detroit Board of Education. If you'll notice, both of these defendants are government agencies. And in Abood, the Supreme Court held that public employees in a public union could be made to pay agency fees, is what they call it, to the union, even though they didn't want to join it and they did not join it but they had to pay agency fees. The theory was that the union had to represent all of the employees, even the ones that were not in the union. So the non-members, among other things, wouldn't be allowed a free ride. Now, non-members were not required to pay for the union's political activities. And Janice, this case that just from a year ago, overruled that decision and said non-members could not be required to pay the union any money without their consent. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas at speakeasyideas.com. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media. If you go to Twitter, it's at The Law, D-K-W, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with D.K. Williams. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're so inclined, if you go to the Facebook page, you can review it, and that would be awesome. And wherever you're listening, like and subscribe, share, etc. And I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching on this stuff. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. Who are our named participants in this week's case? Janice is Mark Janice, and it's spelled J-A-N-U-S. And this is one of those times where I wasn't sure if he pronounced it Janice or Janice. But when I link to the opinion, because I always do that, just quickly, you guys know, I want you to read them if you're inclined to read them, and I give you a, an easy link to find these cases. The Oyez site, O-Y-E-Z.com, that I usually use, also has a link to the oral arguments of, of these cases. And they can be fascinating to listen to. So in a case like this, when I'm not sure how to pronounce the name, I'll make sure I listen to at least the first part of the oral argument because the name of the case is announced by the Chief Justice in this particular case. And so he says, all right, this morning, the first case we'll be hearing is Janice versus et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going with Janice, Mark Janice. He was employed by the Illinois Department of Healthcare and Family Services as a child support specialist. And he didn't want to join the union. That's the other party. He worked in a governmental unit with 35,000 public employees in Illinois who were represented by the respondent, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Council 31. Got to get that council in there. Probably just say the union from now on. Like I mentioned, this was a five to four decision. The majority agreed or decided to overturn Abood and disallow those agency fees in this public union context. Samuel Alito wrote the majority opinion. He was appointed by George W. Bush. The other four justices were Chief Justice John Roberts, also appointed by W. Anthony Kennedy, who was appointed by Reagan. Clarence Thomas, who was appointed by H.W. Bush. And Neil Gorsuch, who we can all recall, was nominated by Trump. Now, Brett Kavanaugh was not on the court yet because he replaced Kennedy, who was still on the court. He was one of the justices here. The four-person dissent was led by Elena Kagan. She wrote the main dissent, 
and she was appointed by Obama. Sotomayor wrote her own separate dissent, just one little short paragraph thing, but she joined Kagan as well. Sotomayor also appointed by Obama. Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined in the dissent, who was nominated by Clinton. Stephen Breyer also in on the dissent, another Clinton appointee. So this one was divided by the political party of the president who nominated them. So the five justices nominated by a Republican were in the majority. The four justices nominated by a Democrat were in the minority. And that doesn't happen as often as you think it might. And when it does happen, it's on a controversial case, so it gets the news, right? People hear about it. But the vast majority of cases are not broken down that starkly. So what are our facts in this case? We'll go right to how Alito laid them out in the majority opinion. Janus refused to join the union because he opposes, quote, many of the public policy positions that it advocates, end quote, including the positions it takes in collective bargaining. Janus believes that the union's, quote, behavior in bargaining does not appreciate the current fiscal crisis in Illinois and does not reflect his best interests or the interests of Illinois citizens, end quote. Therefore, if he had the choice, Alito continues, he would not pay any fees or otherwise subsidize the union. Under his unit's collective bargaining agreement, however, he was required to pay an agency fee of $44.58 per month, which is about $535 a year. And that's important if for no other reason than if he's going to have to dispute this himself, it's going to cost him a whole heck of a lot more than $535 in legal fees. So in a case like this, if you don't have a organization somewhere that wants to take this on for policy reasons, most people are just going to have to just pay it and not have any practical recourse. Sure, they could sue, but it's like I said, it's going to cost them more than 10 years of that. And the court points that out. So before we get into the hardcore weeds of the legal analysis of the opinion, I think it's appropriate time to say a few things about the very existence of public sector unions. Not what I think about them, but what labor hero Franklin Delano Roosevelt and George Meany, a labor and an early labor leader had to say about them because it really it, it the notion of public service unions doesn't really make any sense and i got some of these quotes from an article in national affairs the magazine i've linked to that article in the show notes so here's from national affairs Meticulous attention, FDR insisted in 1937, should be paid to the special relations and obligations of public servants to the public itself and to the government. The process of collective bargaining, as usually understood, cannot be transplanted into the public service. That's FDR. The reason FDR believed that, quote, this is FDR, a strike of public employees manifests nothing less than an intent on their part to obstruct the operations of government until their demands are satisfied. Such action, looking toward the paralysis of government by those who have sworn to support it, is unthinkable and intolerable. All right, this is FDR, labor hero. Roosevelt was hardly alone in holding these views, even among the champions of organized labor. Indeed, the first president of the AFL-CIO, George Meany, believed it was, quote, impossible to bargain collectively with the government because the context between government employees and private employees aren't comparable. From that same article, it quotes, it doesn't name the the Supreme Court judge, which I was disappointed by, but the National Affairs article says, in 1943, a New York Supreme Court judge held, and they don't name him, But this is from an opinion, a judicial opinion in the State Court of New York. To tolerate or recognize any combination of civil service employees of the government as a labor organization or union is not only incompatible with the spirit of democracy, but inconsistent with every principle upon which our government is founded. Nothing 
is more dangerous to public welfare than to admit that hired servants of the state can dictate to the government the hours, the wages, and conditions under which they will carry on essential services vital to the welfare, safety, and security of the citizen. To admit as true that government employees have power to halt or check the functions of government unless their demands are satisfied is to transfer to them all legislative, executive, and judicial power. Nothing would be more ridiculous. So that kind of sums up some of the early feelings about these public service unions, which now dominate labor unions. I mean, you have far more public service unions than you do private unions now. And there's a reason for that. And we'll touch on it. So with that background of on the very existence of these public service unions, let's get into the words of the court and Samuel Alito writing for the majority. He says, Under Illinois law, public employees are forced to subsidize a union, even if they choose not to join and strongly object to the positions the union takes in collective bargaining and related activities. We conclude that this arrangement violates the free speech rights of non-members by compelling them to subsidize private speech on matters of substantial public concern. We upheld a similar law in Abood versus Detroit Board of Education. So he's going to talk about the one they're overturning. And we recognize the Supreme Court, the importance of following precedent unless there are strong reasons for not doing so. But there are very strong reasons in this case, Alito continues. Fundamental free speech rights are at stake. Abood was poorly reasoned. It has led to practical problems and abuse. It is inconsistent with other First Amendment cases and has been undermined by more recent decisions. Developments since Abood was handed down have shed new light on the issue of agency fees, and no reliance interests on the part of public sector unions are sufficient to justify the perpetuation of the free speech violations that Abood has countenanced for the past 41 years. Abood is therefore overruled. I think that pretty much clears it up. In essence, uh, the dissent disagrees with all of that. They don't see the compelling free speech argument on behalf of Abood and those similarly situated. They think Abood was soundly reasoned. They don't think it led to any practical problems or abuse, or to note anyway, and that is entirely consistent with other First Amendment cases. So they just have completely opposing viewpoints on this. Alito continues for the majority. Under the Illinois Public Labor Relations Act, Employees of the state, like Janice here, and its political subdivisions are permitted to unionize. If a majority of the employees in a bargaining union vote in a bargaining unit, vote to be represented by a union, that union is designated as the exclusive representative of all the employees. Employees in the unit are not obligated to join the union selected by their co-workers. But whether they join or not, that union is deemed to be their sole permitted representative. Protection of the employee's interests, the court goes on, is placed in the hands of the union, and therefore the union is required by law to provide fair representation for all employees in the unit, members and non-members alike. And the dissent argues that's enough to justify the agency fees. The union has to represent the non-members, and that's what Abood held. Alito goes on in this case. Employees who decline to join the union are not assessed full union dues, but must instead pay what is generally called an agency fee, which amounts to a percentage of the union dues. Under Abood, non-members may be charged for the portion of union dues attributable to activities that are germane to the union's duties as collective bargaining representative, but non-members may not be required to fund the union's political and ideological projects. In labor law parlance, you don't get to say parlance very often. The outlays in the first category 
are known as chargeable expenditures, while those in the latter are labeled non-chargeable. So the political and ideological projects, you can't charge to the non-member. Everything else, you can charge to the non-member. Alito goes on. Excluded from the agency fee calculation are union expenditures related to the election or support of any candidate for political office. Non-members need not be asked, and they are not required to consent before the fees are deducted. So let me just add this. Nothing says we care about the workers than a union taking money from their wages without bothering to ask. And this sums up the collectivist mentality. You, the individual, or Bob, your buddy, the individual, don't get any say. The union is going to take your money or Bob's money as individuals without asking for it because in the union's mind, it's good for the collective. Individual desires are sublimated to the collective. And that's problematic. Alito continues, Here the non-members of the union were told that they had to pay for lobbying, social and recreational activities, advertising, membership meetings and conventions, and litigation, as well as other unspecified services that may ultimately inure to the benefit of the members of the local bargaining unit. The total chargeable amount for non-members was 78.06% of full union dues. Alito goes on for the court. Janus refused to join the union because he opposes, quote, many of the public policy positions that it advocates, end quote, including the positions it takes in collective bargaining. Janus believes that the union's, quote, behavior in bargaining does not appreciate the current fiscal crisis in Illinois and does not reflect his best interests or the interests of Illinois citizens, end quote. Therefore, if he had the choice, he, quote, would not pay any fees or otherwise subsidize the union. End quote. Under his unit's collective bargaining agreement, however, he was required to pay an agency fee of $44.58 a month, which is that $535 a year. Janice claims that all non-member fee deductions are coerced political speech and that the First Amendment forbids coercing any money from the non-members. Respondents, the union, moved to dismiss the amended complaint, correctly recognizing that the claim it asserted was foreclosed by a boot. The district court granted the motion, dismissed the case, and the Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit affirmed that dismissal. That's what they had to do. The trial court and the Court of Appeals were bound to uphold Abood, because that's what the Supreme Court said, and it was still good law. But that was the entire point. Janice knew this. Everybody knew it. The plan was to get past the district court, past the Court of Appeals, to the Supreme Court, and Janice hoped to overrule Abood, and the union hoped they would, would not. Alito goes on. The First Amendment forbids abridgment of the freedom of speech. We have held time and again that freedom of speech includes both the right to speak freely and the right to refrain from speaking at all. He goes on about the union agency dues. The right to eschew, you don't get to say eschew very often either. The right to eschew association for expressive purposes is likewise protected. Freedom of association plainly presupposes a freedom not to associate. Okay, that's in the Supreme Court case from 2018. And reading that about the right to associate, and the right to not associate, a particular issue might pop into your head. It popped into mine. This whole concept now where cake makers who design cakes, invitation engravers who do calligraphy, photographers who take the pictures, all that type of thing, where these people who are artists are required to participate by state laws in religious or even civil ceremonies they find objectionable. 
And this argument goes beyond religious objections. Like if you have the right to not associate, don't you have the right not to participate in these ceremonies you find objectionable? And it goes beyond religious objections because the right of association includes the right to not associate, period. And this is a tricky subject. Should a person be forced to associate with a ceremony that opposes his religious beliefs? But what if a person is an atheist? Can that person be forced to do it? What if the person is just a raging racist, doesn't want to associate with a particular group of people? Doesn't he have the right to not associate? And don't we have the right to boycott him? Don't we have the right to tell everybody on Yelp and Facebook what this guy is doing? So should that guy be forced to associate by government guns? And make no mistakes, that's the question. And it does lead us to these racial and other discrimination by individuals. It's a hard question to ask. For many, the answer is simple. Yes, force these people to do as the government requires. Do not let them discriminate in any way. And make the artists participate in religious ceremonies that they oppose. Make them do it. And check out episode 8 of The Law, where we discuss the Heart of Atlanta case, which dealt with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And since this case is about public labor union dues, I'll only say this about the broader issue of private discrimination based on race or religion or sex or whatever, whatever horrible thing you can think of. What is real progress? Progressives, one would think, want to progress. So what's more progressive? Government force or voluntary acts? What should the goal be? for progress. More government force or more voluntary acts? What is actually progressive? Violence or peace? How should we change society? By persuasion or by violence? The Supreme Court says compelling speech you cannot do. That's easy. Government can't compel speech. But compelling association? How is the analysis any different? I'll note that the freedom of association, unlike the rights of religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition, is not listed in the First Amendment. But it has been recognized as a fundamental right by the Supreme Court. And that might be a whole other podcast. But just remember, the Constitution does not grant a single right. It doesn't say you have the right to free speech. You have the right to religion. You have the right to press. And then because it didn't say association, you don't have that right. No, that's not how it works. The First Amendment prohibits government from infringing upon rights that you already have. It prohibits the government from legally infringing on your inalienable rights. You've probably heard that phrase before. You have your rights. The government cannot infringe upon them, not legitimately, because they infringe on them all the time, but not legitimately. That's an important distinction. Court goes on. When speech is compelled, however, like making someone say something they don't believe in, additional damage is done. In that situation, individuals are coerced into betraying their convictions, forcing free and independent individuals to endorse ideas they find objectionable is always demeaning. So this is from the 2018 U.S. Supreme Court. Forcing people to endorse ideas they find objectionable is always demeaning. So what if we substitute association for speech in that passage? Let me read it that way. When association is compelled, However, additional damage is done. In that situation, individuals are coerced into betraying their convictions, forcing free and independent individuals to associate with ideas or people that espouse those ideas that they find objectionable is always demeaning. Doesn't this passage answer all of these cases where someone has an objection to associating with a ceremony that betrays their convictions? I don't see any way around that. Now, we'll see what actually happens when those cases reach the Supreme Court. And we talked about the Masterpiece Bake Shop case. I've written about it. And the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case, but they didn't get to that issue. They just said Colorado Civil Rights Commission was so biased he didn't get a fair hearing. So they kicked it back. But they didn't make a ruling on this. They didn't say that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission could not make him do it. 
They just said they didn't give him a fair hearing. Now, Kagan, in her dissent to this case, Janice, says that the overturning of Abood uses the First Amendment offensively, like, like not on defense, but on offense, to take out the state statute, this labor statute that allowed agency fees. And I'm not sure why this bothers her, really, because every constitutional limitation on the government takes out some unconstitutional statute or activity. That's being on offense. We're knocking it out. But it's clear what she's doing. She's setting up her defense when these free speech and association cases eventually get to her and they decide to rule on one. She's setting up her defense of arguing that these artists should be forcibly compelled to participate in these ceremonies that they find objectionable. Because otherwise, she's saying, hey, we can't get rid of these state statutes. That's using the First Amendment offensively. Alito goes on in this Janus case, compelling a person to subsidize the speech of other private speakers raises similar First Amendment concerns, which is what Janus says he's being forced to do with his agency fees. And he is. And because I dig it, when the Supreme Court quotes Thomas Jefferson, I'll read this part from the Janus opinion. As Jefferson famously put it, to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. That's Jefferson. Alito goes on, because to compel subsidization of private speech seriously impinges on First Amendment rights, it cannot be casually allowed. And I thought when I read that, well, does it mean it, can it be seriously allowed? I mean, we're not going to do it casually, but as long as we're not doing it casually, can we impinge on the First Amendment? He says it cannot be casually allowed. For this purposes, that's all we got. That's all we need. Our free speech cases, the Supreme Courts, have identified levels of scrutiny to be applied in different contexts. And in three recent cases, we have considered the standard that should be used in judging the constitutionality of agency fees. And this is a recurring theme of my podcast in the law whenever the Supreme Court talks about levels of scrutiny. Those aren't in the Constitution. And like he said in this opinion, infringement on rights cannot be casually allowed. So the implication is that such infringements can be allowed as they aren't casually allowed. But the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It does not say Congress shall make no law casually abridging the freedom of speech or no law abridging the speech casually. There's no modifier there. There's no casually there. But the Supreme Court, even here in doing the right thing, has inserted one. So in this portion of the case, Alito Supreme Court discusses the different levels of scrutiny applied to commercial speech versus private speech and some other distinctions. And of course, they must do that, right? Because the First Amendment itself separates commercial speech from private speech. What? It doesn't? Oh, so the Supreme Court made that up too. They get too cute too often. They want to make policy. When can speech be abridged? Is it important enough? What about the compelling state interest? When is it not important enough? What's best for society? But the Constitution says you can't do that. There's no provision for that. The Constitution precludes that analysis. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, period. No different levels of scrutiny, no weighing of interests, no casually versus formally. Congress shall make no law. So when you notice this type of thing, ask where that comes from. Does that come from the Constitution or does that come from justices amending the Constitution in a written opinion? And a whole lot of people defend this. Most people probably do. Most legal scholars do because they believe in a living Constitution and don't believe in the original intent. Most of them would just scoff at the notion that the Supreme Court can't do that. Don't let them scoff. And I love this analogy from Alito. Well, Alito writes this. Petitioner, Janice, strenuously objects to this free rider label because that's one of the arguments from Abood that said, hey, we can't have free riders. And it's a major part of the dissent in this case. 
So petitioner Janus strenuously objects to this free rider label. He argues that he is not a free rider on a bus headed for a destination that he wishes to reach, but is more like a person shanghaied for an unwanted voyage. Alito for the court goes on, for the reasons given above, we conclude that public sector, remember this doesn't apply to private unions, public sector agency shop arrangements violate the First Amendment. And our decision in Abood erred in concluding otherwise. There remains the question whether stare decisis nonetheless counsels against overruling Abood. It does not. So that's the major majority opinion. So again, we're back to stare decisis. The thing has been decided, basically, that's what it means in Latin. Precedent, wait, the court has to uphold precedent. It's a major issue because many people think the Supreme Court is going to eventually overturn Roe versus Wade. People are trying to get that issue back to the court now. That's what happened in Georgia and these other states where they passed these statutes that were clearly a violation of Roe versus Wade, and they hope to get it up there. So many people think they might eventually get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court might be willing to overturn Roe versus Wade. So every case for the past couple of years where stare decisis is mentioned, from tax cases, which we've discussed, to this case dealing with a union, agency shops, and, and dues, every case where a prior decision is going to be overturned or, or overturning precedent is being discussed, like here, is dangerous in the minds of many people. They don't want any cases being overturned that have already been decided because the easier it is to overturn these cases, the easier it is going to be to overturn Roe. I don't think they're going to overturn Roe. I really don't. But that's the concern, and I understand why it's a concern for these people. Alito talking about this idea of stare decisis rights. We will not overturn a past decision unless there are strong grounds for doing so. But as we have often recognized, stare decisis is not an inexorable command. Our cases identify factors that should be taken into account in deciding whether to overrule a past decision. Five of these are most important here. The quality of Abu's reasoning, the workability of the rule it established, its consistency with other related decisions, development since the decision was handed down, and reliance on the decision. After analyzing these factors, we conclude that stare decisis does not require us to retain Abu'd. So there you have that. Then they go on to discuss each one of those five factors, and they say none of those factors prevent them from overturning Abood. They conclude Abood should be overruled, and that agency fees in a public union are an unconstitutional abridgment of the First Amendment by compelling the subsidization of speech that one opposes. So think about the private sector. Management understands it has to make money to pay employees. In the private sector, in government, management doesn't know that. They, they, they don't have to. It's not true. They don't have to make money. They, they get taxes. Now they can, So the management in the government context can promise anything without consequences to them or to their department in the federal government or local government or state government. And if they eventually can't fulfill those promises, like in almost all of these publicly funded pensions, retirement accounts for a whole lot of government employees, if these promises can't be met, well, the people that made them they suffer no consequences. And when they can't fulfill these promises, the government can either raise taxes. People will go, you must keep your promise. Or they can take the money from somewhere else. Or they can just break the promise, and which is going to happen in a lot of these pension cases. And frankly, we, people should know this. People should know that government can make all the promises in the world, but they can't keep them all. So I've got little sympathy, maybe a little bit, for those who agree to a government union contract or a union contract with a government entity. Members of the private sector, those unions, know that they have to contribute to the employer's bottom line. 
Private unions know they have to help make money. Members of public unions don't have that concern. And it's one reason these labor leaders and labor icons like FDR and George Meany saw no place for government unions. Alito sums it up. For these reasons, states and public sector unions may no longer extract agency fees from non-consenting employees. Under Illinois law, if a public sector collective bargaining agreement includes an agency fee provision and the union certifies to the employer the amount of the fee, that amount is automatically deducted from the non-member's wages. No form of employee consent is required. This procedure violates the First Amendment and cannot continue. Neither an agency fee nor any other payment to the union may be deducted from a non-member's wages, nor may any other attempt be made to collect such a payment unless the employee affirmatively consents to pay. And there you have it. I see this case as a triumph for individual rights over collective rights. And we have to be vigilant on that count because when the collective becomes more important than the individual, individuals will be sacrificed. We can't let that happen. And the Constitution doesn't allow it. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 53, Janus versus the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, otherwise known as AFSCME. Next week, I know what we're going to be discussing. It's going to be the Constitution and impeachment. You might have heard of that in the news recently. Now, the case we're going to discuss is Nixon versus the United States, but it's not that Nixon, even though that Nixon was facing impeachment. This Nixon, in this case, was a federal judge. He, was, he had been convicted of crimes. And he refused to resign. <laughs> he was in jail and he refused to resign because they've got life tenure, right? And the only way to remove a federal judge is to impeach him. So he was impeached and then the Senate convicted him and removed him from office as required by the Constitution. So we'll discuss what the Supreme Court had to say about that process because he appealed and said he wasn't properly kicked out of office. Supreme Court said he was. But we'll talk about what they had to say about that because that might be relevant in the upcoming weeks and months. We shall see. We are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Check it out at speakeasyideas.com. Let me know what you are thinking. You can hit me up at Twitter at TheLawDKW. Follow me there if you're not already. And on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. Same thing there. I'm available for speaking engagements because who wouldn't want to spend a lunchtime listening to me, right? Also available for consulting and teaching. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details on that. Until next week, my friends, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.